Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. This month, we return for season two of the Cleopatra's Bling podcast, where we continue to meet the creatives and craftspeople who inspire our artisanal jewellery collections. Last season, we met with a beekeeper poet, a wild woman dancer and a mermaid historian. Many of us spend our whole lives attempting to climb the ladder of success in our chosen profession. Liam Spurrell found accolades and opportunities early, Thanks to his talent for flavour and keen eye for detail already at a young age, he found positions opening up to him in some of Melbourne's best restaurants. But rather than stay in the Ratatouille race, Liam decided to trade in his chef's whites for muddy boots, secateurs and scissors. Five months in to the business because the chefs were starting to request like specific items that we couldn't grow or you just couldn't get consistently foraged, so we went, why don't we start doing this? So we started with six little beds. He is now a full-time forager, sourcing ethical and sustainable produce from beach bananas to mountain marigold to olive herb. So you live down the road from me, which is why we're able to do this in person. Yeah. Um, so thanks for coming over. We're just here in Warrandyte on a rainy day talking about foraging. So I'm also curious about your background, obviously, as a chef, because that's when I came to visit you guys, you spoke about that yep. and how that sort of influences your um, your sort of, you know, the foraging aspect of your work, but also, I guess, what you choose to put in your garden. Yeah. Can you tell us about your background as a chef? Uh, so I was a chef for about eight years. Yeah. Um, the... Where I got my first job was through foraging. Through, really? Um, yeah, through View Dumont. I was 14 and asked to do like work experience in the kitchen. And the head chefs went, yeah, if you can bring in some herbs when you do it at the same time. So every Saturday I went in with a few bags of bit of everything. Um, and that's really how I got my in, t- in in the kitchen. So that was at View Dumont. Oh my gosh. So that was back when View Dumont was at Normanby Chambers. That's like such a cool little trade. Like you can intern here if you bring us fresh herbs. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I was doing that for almost 12 months. Yeah. And then, because my oldest brother, oh, one of my brothers worked there. Yeah. um, I wanted to go to a different place. So I went to Cutler & Co for four years, a bit over four years. And then went back to Vudemont because that's, was at the time was like, it's still the pinnacle. And it's just where I wanted to go back to because that was my style of cooking. And then... After about three, uh, two and a half years, I went to Estelle by Scott Pickett. So I was there for a bit over 12 months, and that's with the head chef, Stevie Naran at the time. Yeah. He was my head chef of Unimond and at Estelle. Um, we both kind of, I was always picking with him. Like, if he wanted anything for the dishes, I'd be picking it. So we just came up with the idea that, um, why don't we start a business? And then yeah. I just ran with it. So Great. So what sort of things would you forage initially for your Vudumond? So it was a lot of basic things like, um, because at the time I didn't really do much research about all that. So I got the more basic things like the nasturtions, jasmine, wild garlic, things Mm. like that, all quite basic things that you're starting to see a lot more and more, like almost everywhere can use it. Yeah. But um, yeah, since we've started the business, I've just done so much more research and just spoken to chefs about where they're from and what ingredients they have over there. 
because you get some places people from South America, from Europe, and they have all the things they want to use. So I just see if I can find them around because Australia just has so much, so many different things, and so many mm. things have come in in the past that you're more than likely going to have some form of it. Yeah, true, and also like probably there there's a native equivalent in some cases. Yeah, so that's one thing we do as well. We find two plants that are similar. Yeah. So we have one the native rufamin. Yeah, I remember that one you, yeah, so I think have, I tried. So is that the really spicy one? No, it's a really menthol. Okay. It's got a strong, like, menthol taste yeah. to it. Um, that's a pain to grow in Victoria, and, like, we've struggled to cultivate it so far. We're getting better at it, but um, we've found, like, a, um, the chefs at Pistuso, they got on me onto a one called Penny Royal, um, and that's almost tastes the same. It's just a little bit weaker. Wow. But it's if we don't have any rhythm or anything one day, we can always suggest that we can give you penny roll. So because chefs want the consistency of the same product, because totally. every dish has the to be flavor. the same. So I try and get as um, consistent as possible. That's incredible. So is I guess so that was your sort of your transition from traditional, like the traditional cooking mm. world into foraging. Yeah. And do you find now that it's more common that chefs are kind of in tune with the foraging aspect of their work or do you think it's still kind of niche? Uh, it is still niche. It's just because of what it is. It's one of those products that it is expensive at the end of the day compared to yeah. like all the microbes and that where you get a tray for $10 and it gets you so far a box of things because it takes right. so much time to go out and grab yeah. and deliver and all that. It does come out to be a little bit more expensive, mm. but if you get microherbs and all that, they don't taste like anything. Like yeah. you get micro coriander and that's why I hate microherbs. <laughs> uh, but is it, do you, why do you think they're so popular then? The microherbs are easy. Like you get a lot of places like the cafes and that, they're just so high turnover. They don't have time to Actu- like, actually add flavor with a sort of. And just time to, cause they're doing a thousand covers like a day. Mm. They don't have time to do, like go out and um, really get us in and to try all the things. And then the customers just want, like their eggs with and with some green yeah eggs and like um what is eggs benedict and all that and yeah. what can you add to that to really do it spice it up so they just do that kind of thing i feel like we could do a whole podcast about micro herbs i just have one question yeah. are they just the baby herbs cut up or are they like are they just no they're the regular herbs just diced it's the regular super herbs fine. um things like the coriander you get they grow it to two centimeters out of the ground and then cut it off and that's oh it. okay so they're just like it's the, just shoots. The young yeah. version. Yeah. And, and that, it's the does way that we change try and grow. the flavour? You get no flavour out of them. You have to wait for the plants to develop. So what's the point? <laughs> I feel like a bit of colour. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Even if we don't use in this this in the podcast, I find that so interesting. Yeah. Micro herbs. Yeah, no flavour? <laughs> we try and grow the flag because we try and be as sustainable as possible. Yeah. So I'd never use the microbes because there's no opportunity to get seeds off. Off it. Totally. It's so, so rude yeah. to the plant that yeah. just did all that work. Because yeah. we grow the plants, collect the seeds. So if like we're not picking a plant anymore, we'll still leave it in the ground so that it can grow. And once it seeds, we collect mm. all the seeds and then reuse them. So we don't, we try and buy things once and then yeah. just go from there. So interesting. I feel like the next thing we're going to have to do is like a tutorial with you about like sustainability from your existing plants. Mm. That would be fun. Yeah. Um, so what, for example, are some special ingredients that 
you rely on on day to day in your own cooking mm. or maybe that chefs rely on in their kitchens yeah. that you can't really get at a supermarket or a, a green grocer. So you get things like the mountain pepper. Yes. That comes out well. It's, it's mega spicy. It's 10 times stronger than black pepper. Yeah. But it's almost um, like got a tropical fruit taste to it. Mm. So I use that a lot and um, restaurants get even more and more into that. Uh, things like the lemon myrtle yeah. is always there. You see lemon myrtle on 80% of menus now. Um, things that I'm starting to use that are starting to come in a lot more just because it's hard to grow is things like the aniseed myrtle and the uh, cinnamon myrtle. Cinnamon myrtle. Yeah. How so, would you use that in if you were to cook something with it? Uh, you do have to dry it. It's got quite a coarse leaf, but mm -hmm. it um, goes well with a lot more sweeter things because it's... I've had it with like lamb and all that kind of thing. I was going to say, it's like got a too bit of a sweetness to it that doesn't really work. For some people, it would work. Yeah. But it's like putting a raisin in a curry or something. Some people love it. Most some people, people hate don't. It. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it'd be great for Moroccan cooking or yeah. something. Just a little bit of it. Yeah. Do that. Um, and strawberry eucalyptus is coming through a lot. How would you use that? That's another one, dried as well. So using infusions or just dried powdered. Um, mm -hmm. So if you get it really fine, you just put it through like icing sugar or something and then make a meringue and instead of with the um, using sugar, you just put the lemon metal in the sugar and make it like that. Incredible. So things like that or just infusing it to teas. So my partner always has like green tea and black tea. She always has and she mixes a lot of things with it. Yeah. So like things like corn flour and all that she puts in that. So and so get nice. lemon metal tea and things like that. Is that the one that you told me when I visited your property in South Warrandyte here that is quite hard to grow. Which one? The strawberry. Um, ah, yes, they're just so slow growing. S slow growing. And they're more northern New South Wales, right. southern Queensland area. We you find them, so we try and grow them here. We try and put them in the right places, but it still takes that bit longer just because it's a lot colder down here. Yeah. Would you put them in your Sylvan property? Ah, yes, we have most of them at Sylvan. Okay, We have, good. I think, three at Warrandyte and then 15 at Sylvan. Okay, cool. So. How, where do you get them from? I want to try. Um, so you go to the specialist nurseries. Okay. It's always like the... a struggle to grab them because we Everyone buy them all first. To... You do? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be competing with you then. Yeah. Um, so what do you think are some of the common misconceptions that people have about forage food? So a lot of people think it's overly hard. Like, it's no. just a lot of effort to go out and grab. But um, the only hard part about it is the research. Yeah. So you just have to do lots of research and know exactly what you're doing first. But um, once you get past that, it's all just knowing where to go. It's kind of like intuition that we've lost, I feel like, because of our access to just the supermarket and buying things that are out of season. Yeah. Would Yeah, because, yeah. like, if you, for example, onion weed, I know it's such a basic example. Yeah. But it's everywhere. Yeah. Everyone could just use onion weed. Yeah. And it's like, tastes the same. It's, it's fresh. Just, it's just garlic, yeah. And if you followed your intuition and smelt it, you probably, your body would probably let you know that it's fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But it's yeah, almost like a spring onion. Yeah, exactly. The equivalent of that. But so yeah, it's just a lot of, a lot of that. And just know like where you can and can't pick. Because mm. there's always, there's restrictions with it all as well. So mm. you have to be quite specific where we go. As um, in like regulations from the government? Yeah. Because you can't take trees from um, like certain forests and all that kind of thing. Yeah. You have nowhere to go for that. So we try and go like to private property and ask people like, can we go to the back of your property and grab this? 
kind of thing. So. And are most people cool with that? Yeah, most. You always get a few that do it. Yeah, probably not. Just want their privacy, which I understand. Fair enough. You're yeah. very welcome to come and take out onion weed. <laughs> we have a lot. There's plenty of it around. <laughs> um, so how did you first develop the farm? And do you have any sustainability initiatives that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, so we started Warrandai. It was about five months in to the business because the chefs were starting to request like specific items that we couldn't grow or you just couldn't get consistently foraged. So we went, why don't we start doing this? So we started with six little beds. Um, so we started doing that and then from there it was just make two, three more beds here, two, three more beds there and then we've got I think over 30 beds now at mm. uh, Warrandyte. So we did that. We had to really work the soil. So we do all our own composting. We have chickens and all that. So they break down all our scraps. And if we have like the plants gone to seed and we're just cutting it back and throwing it back, we just feed to the chickens. And then we use them for like um, the manure and fertilizer. So then it all self seeds and... Yeah. And then we do that. Mm. And then we've also always got our compost and everything. All the girls that work for us, some of them bring their like kitchen scraps and that, and we just chuck it on. Yeah. Um, like egg cartons and that, we always put in our compost. Yeah. And then we have our worm farms as well. So we're trying to do as much as we can just to... Help the earth. Yeah, so we don't have to rely on buying anything in. Because mm. the only thing we really buy in is like mulch and that, just... Yeah. Because when you get to a dry summer, it just you can't farm the kind of things we do without... Without it, everything just dries out too quickly because some of the, a lot of things are quite delicate. Mm. So yeah, we only really try and buy mulch. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting coming to Warrandyte after living like for, I'm from the inner city, but living in Europe, it was just never something that came to my mind that you'd need to work on the soil yeah. so much to grow like ba- basic vegetables. Yeah, it takes a couple of years for some places, especially Warrandyte, because it's yeah it's all gold mining territory. Yeah, so it's all clay. Yeah, it's so it's all, incredible. The soil has been destroyed. Yeah. So, also, would there have been soil previously? Do you think? Is that what you're saying? There could have been, but um, because the Yarra River was, I think, one of the first places they found gold, maybe. Yeah. But they did have gold mines around here. You still get the old mine shaft. So, if you have mining in the area, it just destroys it, because they use chemicals and all that to polish the gold and just to find it. Mm. So that just strips it. So crazy. So have you worked on any sort of educational programs through the farm? Yeah, we um, slowly are doing more and more. But before COVID and everything that happened, we had um, a lot of the kitchens come through. So like the whole kitchen would come out and see how things were actually growing and where it actually comes from. So we were doing that. We don't really take people out foraging just because it's too difficult and... Mm. It's when I do it, it's always when I'm working and I have to try and be quick because yeah. we're quite a small operation Yeah, and we have a lot of customers, so that's a bit hard. So we just show them like how you grow things, where it comes from and the whole system of how we do it because we have our own bees. We grow almost everything at the farm. We have our compost and it's good just to come out and see where things come from because yeah. I know when I was in the kitchens, I, you had so much opportunity for that and it wasn't really too much. Yeah, it's not really done very much. And I think there's often a disconnect between what we eat and where it comes from. And I think that's kind of changing now. So you've probably got a good opportunity to educate people. Because it's not that difficult to grow certain things that you use on the daily. Yeah, 
Yeah, and then um, Maggie is also working on getting school groups out as well. Yeah, she told me that. So having children yeah. come in to teach them about foraging specifically or just like how to just have the sustainability garden. and yeah. the whole thing just because um it is a working garden it's almost like a market garden yeah and because we have everything on there it would be perfect for that kind of thing and children love that i used to do gardening yeah. when i was a kid you yeah. spent more time outdoors when you're little yeah than as an adult yeah. well maybe not you but yeah. <laughs> most people um so during the pandemic obviously because a lot of your you know contacts are with people who are in daily life like kitchens mm. and farms and things mm. how have you found running the business in the pandemic uh it's been quite difficult with when the restaurant shut down we're basically shut down yeah so it's been well i'm still in contact with a lot of the chefs just because when we come out of um the lockdowns and everything we just we always go in and just keep touch and let mm. them know what's new what we're working on and I go in bits and pieces when they're doing many development for, say, November now, in two months' time, when yeah. everything opens up. They're already starting to think about that. So yeah. we're already beginning to jump on that. But it's been, yeah, like, it's been when really difficult. lockdown happens, we go down. And it does mm. help that our, the person we, who rents our, it's part of our farm at Sylvan, is a strawberry farmer. Mm. So when lockdown happened, he lost a few bit of, he still had most of his business, but he had extra strawberries. So he started taking them and making jams and giving them to people. And then we eventually made enough to start selling them. And that's where spiral foraging preserves started coming through. Oh, it's that recent? Yeah, spiral foraging preserves started lockdown, the first lockdown. We oh. just went, let's try and make strawberry mountain pepper jam. And then we started doing that and just kept going. We kept getting more local fruit and vegetables and all that kind of thing. And then um, just, yeah. Made it go from there. That's so great. I thought it was older than that. I love your one with pumpkin. Pumpkin, mountain pepper. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. Yeah, that's most people's favorite. Yeah, so I got some of that and your honey with the honeycomb in it for the shop. Yeah. Whenever we can open. <laughs> this is waiting. Um, but I like honey with honeycomb in it. It's yeah. so good. Um, so tell us also, obviously, when I came to meet you the first time, I brought my puppy, Alfonso. Yeah. Who is excited about your dogs and the chickens. <laughs> How's it been having a farm and running it with like animals and the coexistence of every sort of all those Can elements be a bit of difficult life. sometimes, yeah. especially when all the dogs are so young. Yeah. Because um, yeah, my dog Kobe and Meg's dog Sunny, they're a week away from each other. Yeah, in so age. they're little. And then Axel's even younger. And that some days they're fine, other days they can just run over everything and just cause a bit of chaos. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's. We find it works better because um, when we let the chickens out, the dogs don't really harass them. Yeah. Sunny does just because she's little and that's what she does. But the two border collies don't bother them. They chase them around a bit, but they're yeah. both used to them. But um, we find it keeps a lot of like insects and all that kind of thing away. And then a really? lot of yeah, the chickens will eat the insects and then the scent of the dogs just around the farm will keep the rabbits and foxes away. That's so interesting. Okay. I never would have thought about that, but it's so obvious. Yeah, so it keeps kind of the pests away that yeah. eat the the vegetables or yeah. hmm. I have I'm having currently like a a problem with <laughs> my kale. <laughs> so there's some animal and I don't know what it is that's eating it. And that's I've, probably caterpillars, green caterpillars. I don't know because I haven't seen any traces of them. I'm gonna show you when you leave. Yeah. But the leaves are just gone. It's only the on the one area, yeah. even though there's 
six barrels full of veggies <laughs> and I've put wire up <laughs> and that's cabbage moth. Cabbage moth. Yeah. The oh white, white butterfly looking things. Have you seen them around? No. No? That's what normally gets that kind of thing. Okay. I'm going to show you and you yeah. can give me your diagnosis, but I've just been like Googling like mad and I just bought a really fine mesh from series yeah. to cover them for all my hard work. <laughs> so yeah, I understand the, the pest the pest element of yeah. what you do would be like a big yeah. um, component. Another thing I researched yesterday was on the weather forecast. It said severe brown rot mm. warning. And I was like, what is that? And then I looked it up and it's saying this sustained sort of high humidity yeah. and rain can it just cause. sits on the plants. And yeah. And then it causes yeah. a, di- a disease. Yeah. So these are all things obviously you have to think about constantly when yeah. um, growing we kind of do that, but at the same time, we're very hands-off growing as well. Yeah. So with a lot of our trees, when we put them in, we water them in and just to let them survive first. And then once we know they're alive and they're going to live, we just don't touch them. Yeah. We let them grow because we find the taste comes out different as well. Like they come out more how they should taste. Yeah. So we get a lot of things like that. We always try and counteract all like diseases. But mm. if a plant gets damaged, we're very much just... It That's happens. Say love you. Once we have mm. the rain come through and the storms hit, not much we can do because we don't really want to sacrifice the consistent like quality for just to have it. So we always just survive, replace yeah. some things, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So would you use do you use pest control like on any level? For example, do you put out like snail pallets or little, you know, things to kill the bugs or anything? No, we try and do cooperative cooperative planting. Yeah. So if we have a snail problem, we plant marigolds mm. because we want to sacrifice them for the rest. Right. Because the marigold flowers, the snails and all that love them. So we buy, when we do get them, we grow or buy two times as much as we need. And because we know half of them are going to die because they're going to get eaten. But that saves everything else. So the snails prefer marigold over... Yeah. And then... Because we have the dogs as well, we plant alpine mint, which gets rid of fleas. So we try and plant things all around just to maintain and try and scare away the bad things. And that's so do clever. What we can. Or we use garlic and chili. Garlic and chili, I did that. Garlic on my... chili with a bit of oil and then fill it up with water. That spray it. Does a bit. It does. It's not the greatest, but yeah, does a job sometimes. My parents' lime tree was being ring barked by rats. Yeah. And they sprayed it with yeah. chili. And we does trick. Yeah. How many things like chili? Ring barking is also something I've yeah. like. That's such a crazy thing. So let's chat about beekeeping. Yeah. Because like I'm on on I'm on the beekeeping bandwagon now. Obviously, it's only my second season of beekeeping. Yeah. So I find it really interesting, and I've also found it interesting that I haven't had any problems like bee mite or any of those things in my first hive because yeah. I was sort of ex- expecting. You know, and like Varroa is apparently growing, like becoming more, yeah. you know, a problem in Australia. Yeah. Have What have you found like the biggest difficulty beekeeping in terms of like keeping them alive? You know, The biggest thing is the, around this area, the weather. Right. Because it's so cold and because um, the person who is the uh, apiarist that does it is Viv. So it's Vivian's honey. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's because he's only quite recent to it too. I think he had his first hive three years ago. Now he's 50, up to 50. He's got 50 hives. Yeah, he got his first one about three years ago. Oh, my gosh. I find it's addictive, so I can yeah. kind of <laughs> relate. Yeah, um, we've had a few that do 
hive, mite, uh, hive mites. Yeah. So we've had a few lost hives from that. Mm. But um, we, because the 50 hives are in a lot of different locations, it's only quite down to like the one area. So yeah. we try not to have more than 10 hives per area. Yeah. So we try and do that. But um, yeah, the food's the big one. Uh, so he has to be very careful about what he takes out. So you get a lot of beekeepers they'll take out because it's uh, eight frames per hive. Yeah. They'll take out six of them. It's uh, too have, much. Yeah, it's too much and for the winter storage. So we have to be careful. We only take out four. Yeah. Just to make sure they have food for the winter. Otherwise, if it does get really down to it, we have to feed them sugar water. And then that means that honey, you can't really use that that year just because it's, it's just sugar. Yeah, it's just sugar. So, yeah, we try and limit that. But um, I think that's the biggest problem. So do you think that would be different if you lived in another part of Victoria or like in the inner city? Uh, Yeah, probably because in the inner city, there's so much concrete and everyone lives so close together compared to out here. Um, The heat just gets trapped. So it's constantly a few degrees warmer in the city than where we are. Mm. So we have that. And then because we're at such a rural area, it's um, a lot of eucalyptus around. Yeah. So when the bees eat, eucalyptus doesn't really give them a whole lot Mm. um compared to the city where everyone has those cottage gardens and everything where there's so many flowers yeah so and what about native bees because i haven't really heard much about native beekeeping they don't really do much in victoria yeah we do have a native beehive we haven't got it to stick though um so in like victoria perth you get don't really get much and um, south Australia you don't get much so you can have the native bees but you don't then get any product out of them so what what do native bees do versus like italian or european uh the native bees are a lot smaller mm. so they don't really need a whole lot um so they do make honey they make plenty of honey but it has to be in they don't really give make storage right so you get the european bees they have all the storage so when you see the hives when they get over big the bees start just making swarming yeah they just make um, honeycomb everywhere you get the top of the frames have honeycomb on them Mm. that kind of thing the native bees they don't like they make some in victoria just enough to survive when you get to queensland you do get harvestable amounts out of them like far north queensland darwin Broome. that's so interesting that they don't have a surplus do you know why that is or is it just it's just too hard i think right i think it's yet too cold they only have so much to go out for But in Queensland, they would make a surplus because it's warmer. Yeah, and they almost all year they can go out and get everything. But the honey's a lot darker. Really? Yeah, it's almost a lot more earthy. It almost turns bitter. I think. I think I tried it once. So. Yeah, because I just don't. You don't really hear about it even in the beekeeping community. Yeah. So I suppose it's like quite a small percentage of what people do in terms of like the kinds of bees they work with um do you know like because i've also obviously like beekeeping goes back millennia yeah and there's like ancient ancient paintings in like you know caves in spain and Mm. you know like turkey is it's there it's a huge culture there with like most people have honey as their daily like something in their diet you know even honeycomb they just serve slabs of honeycomb with breakfast um do you know if there was like an indigenous practice in Australia with the Aboriginals? Like, I'm so interested about that because I feel like that they know everything about. Yeah. What, um, you know. Not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, I think I've read somewhere that they have little bits. Yeah. Um, 
but they I know for their sugar, mm. the indigenous, they in like down this low, they don't really have like that much access to honey and they didn't need sugar in their diets. Yeah. So their replacement was the acacia tree, like wattles. Yeah. They um tap the tree and it's almost the sap comes out. And it's almost like a jelly. It's almost kind of like honey. Yeah, I'd say it's kind of And they like mix it sticky. through water and it comes out and turns into basically a jelly and they add that. Really? For their sugar, yeah. Mm, must be just a very European thing to incorporate so much sugar into the diet. Yeah. Because like, yeah. Because what everyone craves. Yeah. Sugar, so, salt and fat. Exactly. <laughs> so interesting. And so do you have any hives up in Sylvan? Uh, we have three now. It's just because it's uh, quite a new farm. We've got another seven coming up. Wow. So we want ten up there. Do you think there'll be like very different notes to the honey between Sylvan and Yeah. Here? So one that's quite like just Arid. floral. It's more what you expect honey to be. It's a bit more sweet. It's floral. Um, we've had the honey at Sylvan. It's a bit more um, like earthy. Yeah. Just because it's the eucalyptus up there. Because it's we're backing onto the Yellingbow State Forest, mm. so the bees are faced that way, so they go straight out and into there to go. They, they go foraging as well. Yeah. <laughs> How far do bees travel? I think go up to five k. Yeah, it's so. not that far. Like yeah, it's far for considering yeah. their size, but like it sh- tells you how important it is for the, you know, where you the put amount, them, yeah. this their environment, yeah. which is why I'm growing so many flowers at the moment. So yeah. they've got a lot yeah. around the garden. Yeah, it's so it's so cool. In Turkey, there are these beekeepers that have these like they create these like platforms mm. and they climb up the trees. Yeah. And they've got these very different looking hives, but they you basically have to go up the tree yeah. to get the surplus of honey. I've seen that. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'll send you guys a link. There's a few beekeeping movies in Turkish. But they're all very sad, so mm. I don't recommend yeah. watching them. Um, but it's it's a huge culture there and that's sort of what opened my eyes to honeycomb because you just every market you go to there's some old guy selling like so much honeycomb like stacks of it so i'm noticing that more and more in victoria now you think we will yeah it's um every market i've been through it's like when i was a kid i always saw there's one honey store and they sold just honey out of the yeah and they're getting the like flavored honeys and the actual honeycomb coming through and there's two, three people selling honey at the market. So, so cool. Do you think that it's become a little bit trendy as well to beekeep? Uh, yeah. Cause it's one thing we need. The bees over in other countries are dying on mass. Yeah. So it's good that people are actually coming for it. Cause Australia, we're still getting affected, but not like America and say where they're having all those problems with Baroa. Yeah. Yeah. And That's what lots of other things that are getting them. Yeah, so my friend Nick Dowes, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a beekeeper in Melbourne. Um, He told me that all his sort of like colleagues in the US who beekeep was so shocked that he could have his hive go for years and replace the um, queen maybe once or sometimes she's fine and she just does many seasons and they were astonished. They couldn't believe it because most of them have to replace the whole hive. Yeah, because... um over there, they have the a mass migration to California every year. Yeah. Which, if one say one hive in, what's the state in America? Ohio. Yeah, Ohio has um a disease. Yeah. I think it said eighty or ninety percent of bees go to California for almond season to produce the almonds. Wow. So if you have a disease from that and they all go into the one area, 
then they all get the uh, disease. Yeah, they all have a chance for it. So I think that's a big problem over there. Because do our bees migrate like that? They don't, do they? Some people do. It's not like over there. I think a high percentage, like 70, 80%, something like that, go to migrate to the one area. In Australia, you get to like the olive groves and that, but it's short and we're mm. not producing like those amounts. So interesting that their instinct tells them to go. Oh, these are the people that have the hives? Yeah. They all take them. Oh, they, they take the, the people take right, the so. for pollination. Yeah. Okay, I see. I, th- I thought you were telling me that the bees go, no, and I was like, yeah. clever. No. But it's, bees yeah, are super clever. They do that, and then it turns into a problem after a while. Mm, okay. Yeah, so n- another interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever had a rodent try and get into your hive. Uh, we have the bases that stop. We yeah. make our own bases that try and stop it, yeah. So Nick told me another thing which I found incredible, which was that the bees will attack the foreign whatever it is, entity, we'll yeah. call it. So in this case, like a, ma- um, a rat a rat or a mouse. Yeah. And then they mummify them. Yeah. That's it. incredible. Yeah. So that it doesn't disturb, like, the pH levels and yeah. the bacteria in the hive. Yeah, mummify them with wax. Yeah. And then it doesn't disturb. Yeah. I um, just find that That makes so much wax and it's the best thing to do, to use. Um, we always keep all our waxes, all our wax. Yeah. We knock down. And we use it for everything. Like if we have, to say, our table, yeah. we have a wooden outdoor table, you polish it with wax. Yeah. And it's better than any, like, decking oil or anything. Totally. Things like that. We use all that. So it's just one of those things that it covers everything. It's completely... Natural. Yeah. And, yeah, I was just astonished that the bees would mummify yeah. something. Yeah. I just found that, like, it still blows my mind yeah. that they're just that that clever and that they can learn their jobs as well. Hmm. So, you know, the worker bees and then they, you know, the drones and like, so Nick was explaining that they sort of start from, you know, they've kind of got a pecking, an internal pecking order where they like sort of keep the hive clean and, you know, produce the cells and all of that, which also incredible because they're always the same shape. Um, And then the foraging is kind of the next thing. So if you're like a baby bee, you just, you know, you're on the bottom rank, and then yeah. you work your way up. So they learn their, like, you yeah. know, the progression of their career <laughs> and they upgrade, which I just this is incredible. I don't think many animals have that kind of, like, intelligence versus instinct is what I mean. Yeah. Like, they learn. Yeah. The only one is probably us. Yeah. Apart from that. But yeah, I was always surprised about how clean they are. Yeah, they're well. super, like, super clean and they, like, get rid of. Yeah, because if you sit there and watch them, you get... They just throw out the dead bees. Yeah. You see them walk to the front, just throw them and go back in and grab another one. They're like cleaning. Yeah. I found it incredible. So, yeah. Well, I think the um, next time we do something, we should do a sort of like a home DIY seed kind of workshop where you teach us how to sort of get the seeds from our gardens and like, um, you know, what to do with them if you dry them or whatever yep. you have to do for the next season. Yeah, do that. That will be fun. And I need to call Meg about my citrus yeah. because I haven't planted them yet because I've kind of been intimidated by the amount of work yep. that we need to do on the soil. Yeah. And so, if you use um, black grit. Black. Grit. Grit. It's a product called black grit. It's like citrus food. Citrus feed. So. That will help them? Yeah. Will that help break down the soil as well? 
Not no. really. Yeah. If you can, you can buy citrus mixed soil, like yeah. pre-mixed, but um, that stuff works well, but you have to replace it quite often just because mm. when you have the pre-bought soils, it, you have the trees in it for two years and the tree they takes just, the all the nutrients away. Totally. So, black grit. So okay. that's what the black grit's for. It's just a replacement. Cool. Awesome. So for any of you who are listening and would like to find out more about what Liam does, you can find him on Instagram at Spiral Foraging. And if, if any of you are hungry after listening to this and would like to buy some of Liam and Viv's honey, you can contact Liam directly. What's the best email address? Uh, so it's liam at spiralforaging.com.au. Okay, great. And he sells honey by the jar, honeycomb, and all kinds of beautiful relishes, which I can personally vouch for. Thanks, Liam. Thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Each and every piece in the Cleopatra's Bling range is made with an eye to the utmost standards in sustainability, so it's possible to shop comfortably in any collection from sterling silver to solid gold. You can rest assured that each artisan and team member works in a safe environment while the environment is protected by recycled materials. To learn more about our sustainability initiatives, visit our website or write us an email. This podcast was produced by Liam Goff and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com and keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. In terms of selection, I love all the English flowers and the bulbs. So. Yeah, and the seeds, and I grow most of my flowers from seed. And then my husband does love natives and the birds do, so I have a bit of a selection for them. You know, the silver princess trees and grasses, because, you know, I think they can live side by side. Until next time, stay curious.